Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion with entertaining and timely pop culture topics. Today, we're going to be talking about the trade market or lack thereof per reports for quarterback Trey Lance, how many 49ers are ranked in the top 10 for their positions Individually, we're going to go over some top pro football focus grades from last season for 49ers players. Tight end university kicked off this week in Nashville. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about secondary rankings around the league and do a deep dive into the safeties currently on the 90-man roster. And in the plus section, we're going to talk NBA draft, which concluded last night. A couple trades, Chris Paul to Golden State and Chris Stapps Porzingis to Boston and a new show coming out on Netflix next year, sci-fi called the three body problem. I want to talk about that. And I just finished paper girls, which is another sci-fi fantasy show on Amazon prime, uh, based on a comic book series, which I also finished. So I want to just discuss that and compare and contrast for everyone. But like always, it starts with the 49ers. So let's get right to it. Let's talk Niners. All right. So kicking off again with the quarterback position, but not with Brock Purdy, the possible QB2 Trey Lance was part of a discussion between ESPN's Adam Schefter, I guess now ESPN's Pat McAfee on the Pat McAfee show. And Adam Schefter came out and said that there's no trade market right now for Trey Lance. And the big if to me is... If he was ever actively being shopped. And I don't think the two have to go hand in hand. The 49ers don't have to be the ones putting out there. Hey, does anybody want Trey Lance? They don't have to be making the calls. Does anyone want Trey Lance? And for people to say, nah, we're good for Adam Schefter to make the statement that there's no trade market. There could be teams not calling the 49ers about Lance. There could be teams reaching out and calling San Francisco, but not offering enough for San Francisco to consider parting with him. Again, this is just two years removed from being the number three draft pick and trading up. And essentially it was trading two number one draft picks and one number three for him. And then there was a pick swap, which I don't count as part of the giving up picks because it was a pick swap. Here is the quote from Adam Schefter, and then we're going to discuss. There really was never a lot of interest in Trey Lance for what they gave up, what I just mentioned, and what they get back, which is not very much at all. It doesn't make sense to trade him. There was no trade market, and Kyle Shanahan has said that he didn't have that they didn't have any trade talks with teams. He's not going anywhere right now. He's there with the 49ers. However much Kyle Shanahan, I mean, as as transparent as Shanahan and Lynch are really when it comes to all things San Francisco, I think you have to take Shanahan saying that they didn't have trade talks with teams with a grain of salt. I would find it hard to believe that no team at all in the past couple months have reached out to San Francisco asking what it would take the 49ers to part with Lance. And I think the asking price right now for teams is probably too high. So I do go back to the point that they're not actively shopping him. They're not trying to push him out the door, so to speak. And he's certainly not on the discount rack. And they're certainly not going to get two first round picks and a third for him. I don't know what acceptable compensation would be, but you also, there's going to be, let's call it an inflation markup, but inflation, not due to the economy, inflation due to the 49ers quarterback's past performance and history of getting injured. That makes him more valuable to San Francisco for what he's making, which still isn't a ton of money, than to trade him for, let's say, a second round pick and a fifth round pick. 
or a third and a fourth. I'm just throwing out draft picks here, guys. I'm not really putting a ton of thought into what the compensation could be that San Francisco would accept, but I think having a viable second or third quarterback, wherever he's going to place in the pecking order, because it is Brock Purdy's job to lose, is more important to this team making a deep postseason run just to mitigate the potential disaster that could happen that has happened every season other than 2019. But there's a lot of time between now and the beginning of the regular season for a team to get injured or to get really desperate or or not a team to get injured, a, a quarterback to get injured on a team that may get really desperate a la Sam Bradford from 10 plus years ago. I guess was he traded from the Vikings to the Eagles and they gave up a, a first round draft pick or might have been vice versa. I don't I, could that happen? Sure. Is it one first round pick enough to part with Lance? Maybe. But things need to shake out. There needs to be some sort of demand or want or dire straits that a team would need to be in. I think for San Francisco to part with him. So now here's more from Adam Schefter. Now I will say this, Sam Darnold signed with the 49ers on the first day of free agency. And if there's a player signing with the team on the first day, that tells you that the team likes that guy a lot. And they really did like Sam Darnold. He was looking at a couple of different options. He chose the 49ers. Good point by Schefter. But I don't think they signed Darnold with the intention of trading Lance. They signed Darnold, if for no other reason, then they didn't know what the heck was going to happen with Brock Purdy. Right? Was it going to be UCL surgery? Was it going to be full-blown Tommy John? How was the recovery going to be? Was he going to be able to, to bounce back? The 49ers were hedging their bets, and they probably had an eye on, oh, God. I mean, not that they were taking shots at their training staff, but it had they've had... They haven't had players beat the timetable back to recovery, 49er fans, across positions. They were able to afford Darnold. If he doesn't play at all, they get to save you know a couple million dollars in incentives, which is fine. They realize having three import three quarterbacks is important to the makeup of their team because how fragile the team is, unfortunately, especially the quarterback position. I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it. The, I think I think Trey Lance gets traded next year, especially if Brock Purdy is healthy and plays well. If he's not and or craps out, all bets are off, because remember, Darnold is only on a one-year contract. Or Lance could get traded if he clearly is the number three quarterback in the pecking order. If Sam Darnold clearly jumps him, and Lance is not, if he's not happy about it, or... His representation wants to make a big deal and try to get him out of there. That's a way that I think he can go. But that's that's dangerous for San Francisco to not that they would voluntarily voice that Trey Lance is the number three quarterback, but it could become apparent in training camp that he's falling behind Darnold based on snap counts or whatever. And that would drive down the asking value from other teams to try to pry him away. They're not, they're not prying away a Aaron Rodgers, right? They're prying away a third quarterback who has really proven nothing in the league. And lastly from Schefter, but let's also be very clear that Brock Purdy, if he's healthy, he's the guy on opening day. He's the starting quarterback. He's the number one. If he's not, for if for some reason he can't go, we'll see how Darnold and Lance do in the camp this summer. And I think going into camp, Sam Darnold has the edge there. I don't think that's the case. I don't think there's any pecking order at quarterback or really any other position outside of the presumptive starter. Any positions that are up for grabs in terms of an order or a leaning going into training camp. You know why, guys? Because that's what training camp is for. To figure out who's going to make the team. To figure out who your starter or starters may be at at certain positions. Who's the backup? Who's the third string for any positions that might have third string? It's not now. And if Adam Schefter wants to say, I think that Sam Darnold's ahead, what is that based on? He didn't say that it was based on a source, an unnamed source. It's just his opinion. And guess what? He's a national reporter that doesn't examine the 49ers as much as anybody that's a 49er content creator or you guys that are listening who are 49er fans. So it's just his opinion and conversation, much like anything I'm giving is my opinion. It's not based on, you know, stone cold facts. 
But we are diving into the Niners more so than the national media is, no matter how credible the reporter may be. So Lance, no trade market. It's a very deceptive phrase because I don't know what trade market or trade talks actually consist of. Are the 49ers listening? Of course they're listening. If a team was off, if a team offered San Francisco three first round draft picks for Trey Lance tomorrow, they'd trade him. <laughs> I think if you're getting back more than you invested, you sell. That's not going to happen. They're not going to get two first round picks for him. They're probably not going to get one first round pick for him. That they would agree to. I don't believe that. Maybe that's not the case. We'll see. So let's get now into top 10 ranked 49ers per pro football focus at their respective positions. And there were seven 49ers ranked in the top 10 of their positions. McCaffrey ranked the number three running back. Debo, the number 10 wide receiver. Kittle, the number three tight end. Trent Williams, the number one tackle. Nick Bosa, the number three edge defender or edge rusher. Fred Warner, the number one linebacker, and Dre Greenlaw, the number eight linebacker. The, I don't really have an issue with war where you know these players are placed. I think fans of teams always seem to overvalue the players on their favorite team versus the rest of the league. It is looking at things through, you know, rosy, you know, lenses. Bosa at number three. I'm sure he's behind Miles Garrett because I, I don't have the the actual list from Pro Football Focus. I'm not surpri- uh, subscribed to it. Garrett's probably ahead of him. And then it's either TJ Watt or Micah Parsons as a projection for going into um, 2023. Bose is the, the reigning defensive player of the year. So it is curious how he's not number one, but based on their metrics and Pro Football Focus is analytics and metrics and quantifiable type of things. Top three, I'm fine. I'm not losing any sleep over that. I still think Debo at number 10 for a wide receiver is high. I really do. Maybe that maybe the 10th best wide receiver in 2021, if you're doing after the season rankings, but I don't believe he's the 10th best ranked wide receiver as it stands in the offseason, nor will he be the 10th best wide receiver when it's all said and done in 2023. Top 20? Sure, I think that's very possible. Same with Ayuk. Top 10, I I don't know. So now, kick, keeping it with pro football focus, grades from 2022, and they gave the grades and the snap counts. I don't want to bore people too much with that, but I'm just going to go across, you know, really like the top four or five from each position. So Brock Purdy was the highest ranked quarterback on the 49ers this season, it's going to include quarterbacks that are coming over, and you'll see next, a uh, 77.7 um, score, and he played 533 snaps. Number two is actually Brandon Allen, who had a 74.9 grade out of only 16 snaps with the Bengals, so take that for what it's worth. Sam Darnold, third, 62.2, 378 snaps with the Panthers. Trey Lance, fourth, 53.1 grade, 84 snaps. Not a Trey Lance hater. I'm not doing anything but reading off stats. And Sam Darnold had four times, four to five times as many snaps as Lance to get that grade up. And Brandon Allen only had 16 snaps to, in a way, minimize the damage he could have caused to his pro football focus grade, a 74.9. But, you know, Purdy versus Darnold, 533 snaps to 178, you know, 50% more snaps for Purdy and a 15.5, not percent, but a 15.5 higher grade, points higher grade than Darnold and about 24.6 higher than Lance for what it is worth. Nobody played close to a full season or close to it, half a season at best. Wide receivers for the 49ers. Highest ranked was Brandon Ayuk, then Debo, then Ray Ray McLeod, then Jawan Jennings. Not surprising to me, I said going into last year that Brandon Ayuk was going to be the number one receiver on the team. He is the best wide receiver on the team. 
And these pro football focus grades represent that. Running backs, McCaffrey is not first. Jordan Mason is first, albeit in abbreviated action and snaps. Then McCaffrey, then Eli Mitchell, then Kyle Juszczyk, then Ty Davis-Price. Obviously, no rookies, and I'm not, not because I'm, I'm on the running back line, but no rookies are included because they were not in the NFL last year. Tight ends, Kittle obviously first, then Ross Dwelly then Charlie Werner. O-line, top five highest graded, Trent Williams. Then Colton McKibbitts in abbreviated action, but that's promising, knowing that he's going to be the right tackle to start the season unless something catastrophic happens. Jalen Moore, interesting since he's a backup. Jake Brendel is fourth, and Aaron Banks is fifth. On the defensive line, Nick Bosa is first, Javon Hargrave second during his time with the Eagles, Drake Jackson third, Cleland Farrell fourth with the Raiders, Eric Armstead fifth as a defensive tackle. So nice to see with the uncertainty surrounding the 49ers DNs, or at least the reported uncertainty, that three DNs are graded uh, in the top four grades of 49ers currently on the roster. Now you may, you may say, well, T Y McGill and, um, Kevin Givens, uh, Austin, Bryan, you know, carry Hyder. Like how good are those players? Of course, these players should, should rank, you know, ahead of them. Yeah, they should. And they are, you know, Drake Jackson and the Cleveland Farrell should rank ahead of a carry Hyder or an Austin Bryant, um, or a Daryl Johnson that was signed from Buffalo from last season. Linebackers, Warner, Greenlaw, then Burks, then Demetrius, Flanagan, Fowles. And that is probably going to be your top four linebackers going into the season with one of the rookies, either Winters or Graham, taking that fifth spot. Cornerbacks, Traverius Ward first, Isaiah Oliver with the Falcons last year, second, Sam Womack third, Diamador Lenore fourth, and Ambry Thomas fifth. Safeties, Teleno Hufunga, highest graded, then Tayshawn Gibson, then George Odom in limited spot duty, then Miles uh, Hartsfield from the Panthers. Jair Brown obviously was at Penn State last year, Um, but there there are your highest four or five graded players per position per pro football focus. Now, Moving on for some from grades, let's talk about Tight End University, which was formed in 2021 by George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, and the retired Greg Olson. It's a three-day summit for tight ends that has become extremely popular. It's being held in Nashville, which is where George Kittle lives in the offseason. And this year, they have approximately 80 players participating. Five quarterbacks are there to throw to the tight ends, including Trey Lance and Sam Darnold. And here is a quote from Kittle. Basically, we're in a classroom two of those three days. We'll cover the run game, running routes, your mental approach to the game of football, the the best ways to recover, what your mindset is before certain plays, and how you read coverages. I think this is a great thing that the three tight ends started and and tight end in the NFL is by no way an undervalued or underappreciated position. It's a tough position in fantasy because if you don't get one of the top four tight ends, you might as well just wait <laughs> four or five rounds because then there becomes a huge wash in terms of production. But it's a position that's multifaceted, right? It's a position that both blocks quite a bit for run plays, for pass plays or for any sort of kind of deception. And it's a it's a, a position that you're going out for passes as well. Yes, you do some blocking at receiver, but you're not doing inline blocking or being asked on many plays to block a 200 a 300 and I'm sorry, 270 pound D end or block a 225 pound blitzing linebacker. Sometimes running backs get that responsibility too, but they are much more getting it dirty on the line of scrimmage like offensive linemen do, but have to have the wherewithal for releasing, for reading holes in coverage, for trying to beat man, working on hands, route running. It is, it is an interesting approach that Kittle 
Kelsey and Olsen are taking. It's not just about the physical stuff. It's not just about the athletic stuff. He mentioned two days in the classroom, which is equally as important in addition to how to recover rehabilitation, football, violent, described as car crashes, repeated car crashes between big, strong, and fast human beings. So that was three days. It concluded yesterday on Thursday. Uh, I don't know if any other 49er tight ends were included, but just something that, you know, with Kittle being the people's tight end and having, you know, two big time name headliners and Greg Olson as well uh, had a great career with the Panthers and obviously now is part of the number one uh, broadcasting team on Fox along with Kevin Burkhart until uh, Tom Brady joins the booth, I guess, for the 2024 Season one transaction to note for San Francisco. They released undrafted rookie free agent linebacker Mariano Sori Marin with an injury waiver. If he clears waivers, he could revert to the 49ers injured reserve list, or they can just release him outright with an excuse me, an injury settlement. Right now they have 89 of their 90 spots filled on their 90 man roster. There's no rule that they have to bring 90 into training camp. It could be 89 and they can wait to see in training camp if they need to fill up another position due to injury or whatnot. But if they're looking for a position to fill, it could be tight end. They have six for training camp and they're probably going to keep four or safety since they also currently have six for training camp and preseason. Another ranking, actually, I should have moved this up in the position or in the order of discussion, but Pro Football Focus also ranked secondaries in the NFL. San Francisco, interestingly enough, came up uh, uh, ranked ninth. I thought that was high. I thought I would see them in the mid-teens because it doesn't seem to be a source of strength of the team, even though they're ranking like the top two or top three pass defense the past couple of years. It seems like when teams need to throw on San Francisco, they can. But here's the top 10. Jets, number one, Miami. Philadelphia, Denver, Baltimore, Dallas, Kansas City, Cleveland, San Francisco, and Buffalo. Rounding out the top 10. If anyone's curious how the NFC West fared, in addition to San Francisco being ninth, the Seattle secondary, which is highly touted but young, 17th, Arizona 29th, and the Rams last at 32nd. And here is the quote from Pro Football Focus. The Niners secondary combined to earn an 84.6 coverage grade last season, the fourth best mark in the league. So that kind of is in my face for what I said that they could be passed upon. But watching games, you know, teams were able to throw on San Francisco when they needed. And when you think of San Francisco, you think D-line and linebackers more so than you think secondary. Back to pro football focus. However, safety Jimmy Ward departed in free agency and former defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryans left for the top job in Houston. The nickel corner slash third safety role is up for grabs. Well, that's going to be Isaiah Oliver, and I'm guessing Jair Brown's going to be the third safety, but this is still a strong unit that was tough to pass on in 2022 and should be solid in 2023. Even stronger pass defense this upcoming season with a presumed improvement on the defensive line should make a, the 49ers being a top three ranked unit, maybe have a little bit more bite than they've had in the previous seasons. Now sticking with secondary, let's look at the safeties on the team. Last week, uh, last episode was cornerbacks. We're moving farther back safeties. I see them keeping four. Uh, we and they have six on the team. We're obviously a couple months away, or at least a month away from training camp kicking off. And this team does have ten point seven million dollars in cap space. Should they make any? Should they want to make any addition going into the season? But who uh, who's on the roster? So Talanoa Hufunga, All Pro last season. Tayshawn Gibson had a really nice season. Led the team with in interceptions with five. Jair Brown, third-round rookie from Penn State. George Odom in his second year as a backup safety. Miles Hartsfield from the Panthers. Taylor Hawkins on the practice squad last year. And Avery Young, an undrafted rookie free agent out of 
Rutgers. So, like as I mentioned, I think four are going to make the team, and it makes the most sense that it's Hufunga, Gibson, Jair Brown, and either George Odom or Miles Hartsfield. So when you look at like salary cap hits and savings, just because it's, it's worth talking about, I don't think Tayshawn Gibson's going anywhere. Uh, they signed him about a month ago or two months ago. They would take a $1.37 million hit if released. They would save $730,000. George Odom in the second year of a three-year deal, I believe, if released, a $400,000 cap hit, but would save $1.94 million against the cap. Miles Hartsfield was with... Um, Steve Wilkes, defensive coordinator in Carolina last year. No guaranteed money. No cap hit would save a million dollars if released. Taylor Hawkins, same. No cap hit. $750,000 saved. Avery Young, undrafted rookie free agent, got an $11,666 signing bonus. So that would be the cap hit. $740,000 saved if released. So, you know, even if they were just, you know, looking at the math, even if they were to release a George Odom for a Miles Hartsfield, you know, they would save about 940, you know, $1000, which doesn't seem like a ton. But it, you know, if it's a versatility issue, if if Hartsfield can play safety but also help out at nickel cornerback, if there's injuries, Odom, the more accomplished special teams player, but you know, if you can save around a million dollars, it's worth considering, and not that San Francisco is up against the cap, $10.7 million under, but any unused cap this year will roll into next year, where San Francisco currently is over the cap by more than $10 million. So while this is a, you know, could be a, some sort of a math equation about comparable performance and saving money, um, they could keep five safeties. I, I just, I just don't see it given the numbers game elsewhere, but a nice mix of youth. I mean, Odom's still relatively young. Hartsfield's still relatively young. Hufunga's in his third year. Brown's a rookie. Gibson is 32, but played every game last season was dependable. May not have the playmaking ability that Jair Brown has, but he's Gibson's rarely going to be out of position. He may not be able to stay with some young burners as well as Jair Brown maybe could, although Jair Brown is not a burner, you know, himself. It's how do the pieces fit together in the secondary in this first year, the Hufunga Gibson pairing may be better and more dependable than the Hufunga Jair Brown pairing, but that is certainly the pairing in 2024 and beyond. But as I mentioned, end of July, mid end of July, we'll get into my, 53-man roster making actual predictions of who I believe will make the active roster, obviously barring any injuries or anything super unforeseen. But that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stay right here. When we return, we're talking NBA draft, a couple NBA trades, a sci-fi show coming to Netflix in January, and I'm going to review the Prime video series and comic book series, Paper Girls. Stay right here. It's plus time. All right. NBA draft was held last night in Brooklyn. And to no surprise, French phenom Victor Wembayama, seven foot four center from France, was selected number one overall by the San Antonio Spurs. Didn't watch any of his French games, French league games. Um, watched some of the highlights. Kid's a monster, huge wingspan can handle the ball is going to be a franchise changing pick for the Spurs. And they went back to the picks that they had at number one, David Robinson at center, uh, Tim Duncan at center, you know, they made, they turned, you know, the Spurs around. Of course, San Antonio had a great supporting cast when Robinson was playing with Duncan for the first couple of years, you had Kawhi Leonard, you had Manu Ginobili, you had Tony Parker, and good depth. The Spurs are a very young team, but this is a good first piece, or not first piece, but a good major piece, major building block to build around. You know, the NBA is a different animal than a French league. You know, he's seven foot four, I think under 200 pounds. So a stiff breeze is going to blow him over. 
he needs to put on weight. It's it's he's also young. He's going to grow into his body. But we've seen tall, big, lanky people or lanky prospects have some good fl- fleeting moments in the NBA. And I don't think Wembayama is is one of those that's going to have a fleeting moment. I think this kid, he's referred to as a generational prospect and quite possibly the best prospect the NBA has ever seen. Of course, it's hyperbole. Of course, anytime there's a really, really good prospect, they have to, he has to be anointed as the best ever, whereas it should be looked at after the fact and then you could say maybe LeBron James was the best ever prospect or number one pick ever, given what he's done over the course of his career. You know, overall, I find drafts to be, you know, intriguing, especially like the NFL draft. I'll do a bunch of mock drafts for the 49ers just to figure out who they might be selecting or I would want them to select. And that rarely is the same as what actually happens in real life. But just the idea of who's going to get picked where, you know, I found myself uh, over the years watching the NBA draft quite a bit, even though, you know, outside of of a couple players, especially whoever's projected to go number one, two or three, I have no idea what's what's really going on in terms of who the players are, how good they are. And I think even though the NBA draft is a a relatively well-rated, you know, program and fans are into it, I think casual NBA fans or even hardcore NBA fans or somewhere in between kind of have the same issue. It's tough recognizing some of these players. And and really, if you don't recognize them that well or know about them or know about the game, then you you really don't know maybe what they're going to bring to, even if it's a team that you're not rooting for. I mean, this year in particular, top players, five of the top seven players were either overseas players, two from France, two from Overlight, the Overtime Elite League or team, and one from the G League. So a lot of fans or many, the majority of fans aren't watching overseas games. They're probably not watching Overtime Elite games or watching many G League games. Now, even beyond that, college players, I think, kind of get, you know, unless you're, you know, a real hardcore NBA analyst or watching a ton of college basketball, College players seem to almost mix together, right? Like, and the way I'm defining that is unless you're a player that's on a really big name school, a Kentucky or a Duke, a UConn won the championship this year, although they, you know, the past 10 years they haven't been, or five five years they haven't been, you know, fantastic. But the Kansas, the blue-blooded programs, those kids are obviously going to have more name recognition and notoriety in terms of, uh, you know, catching scouts eyes or even the average fans eyes, or it needs to be a player that makes a deep tourney run NCAA, you know, March Madness tournament. That's going to catch the eye of fans and the nation and someone that you may be pulling for, for your team to draft, because you got to see three, four, five games that this, you know, kid played in the NCAA tournament. Otherwise, it feels like it's a whole lot of beige. It's just a whole lot of the same. And I think the issue with the NBA players, I don't want to say, you know, NBA draft. I don't want to say NBA players or prospective players coming out is what do you, every time someone's drafted, it could be the beginning of the first round, mid, late, or second round, you know, it's, you know, wingspan, they're an explosive athlete, you know, they can handle the ball, they can rebound, maybe they have an NBA body and are strong. And generally, like these kids are ranging from like, let's say 18 or 19 to 21, 22 years old. But regardless of position, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, a stretch four, a center, a stretch five. I mean, Victor Wembayama, he may invent a new position. He may be a point center. Like it's, something that we really may may never have seen before, but all players coming out of college basketball are asked to do the same thing. You're asked to dribble, you're asked to shoot, you're asked to play defense. Whether you're doing it down low on the block, up top handling, or you're a three and D type of a wing player, scoring, shooting, rebounding, playing defense, there isn't the position-specific difference like you have in the NFL between a quarterback and a running back and a lineman and a tight end. 
and a linebacker and a D lineman and a, and a safety. So anytime I'm getting like the rundown of who this prospect is, people are generally saying the same ish things about all players. And I think that also causes, I don't want to say confusion, but a lack of interest among fans following the draft, especially casual NBA fans. Cause other than Victor Wembayama and maybe the other two players that were drafted uh, at two and three beneath him, it's a whole lot of the same. And that's not to say the 55th pick is going to be just as good as the fifth pick. I mean, that pick could be just as good or better. We don't know. But in terms of the scouting, the measurements, the agility, the intangibles, it all seems to wash together. That's why I'm saying it seems very beige. And maybe that's my own NBA naivete, but there's a lot of sameness, regardless of position, that basketball players are asked to do that I think makes it hard for the fans to really get behind and get into the draft because it all just kind of feels either either the same or, or kind of similar. Just my opinion. Now, a couple trades. Chris Paul of the Phoenix Suns, I mentioned last podcast, was traded to the Wizards. Now he's part of a trade going to the Golden State Warriors for Jordan Poole. Somehow... The Golden State Warriors, who are an already old team, got older. Chris Paul, 38 years old, going to be 39. That's actually how it works, right? He's not Benjamin Button. He's not going to be aging in reverse. Gave up shooting guard or you know, backup shooting guard Jordan Poole. Paul often injured. Had a decent stat line last year for the Suns, but obviously just never available when he's needed. 13.9 points a game, 8.9 assists in 59 games. Last year of an expiring contract, he's making $30 million this year, and Golden State was able to get rid of Poole, who has four years, $140 million left. That's $35 million a year, and now he's part of the Washington Wizards franchise. I read somewhere, and I I haven't found anything that disputes it or not, that I don't think this is right, that Phoenix is actually paying $28 million of Chris Paul's salary, 28 of his $30 million. If that's the case, ridiculously phenomenal. I would have to look into that more to see if it's the case. Either Even if they're not, they're saving $5 million, essentially swapping Paul for Jordan Poole. The Wizards are also getting a 2027 second round pick and a 2030, seven years from now, first round pick. So Poole, last year with the uh, Warriors, played in 82 games, averaged 20 points, 2.7 rebounds, and 4.5 assists per game. Struggled mightily in the playoffs and famously got into a fight with Draymond Green uh, before the season started where he was punched in the face. But this trade, even though Golden State during the playoffs and during the season was saying that the Poole-Draymond spat wasn't a distraction after they lost in the playoffs, it was a distraction. They said, oh, you know, it, it actually was. So They were able to get rid of of Jordan Poole for Chris Paul. All right, fine. What this probably signals is that now that Draymond Green opted out of his contract, the Warriors are probably more open to signing him since Poole has gone. Not that they're more open to. it, It opens the door even wider for Draymond to return should he want to, assuming the Warriors don't get outbid big time like a Memphis or another team that could use Draymond, the Warriors just have to be careful. He's not young. He's either 33 or 34 years old. You have to be careful how many years you're going to give a descending player. He he certainly not ascending. And I don't think he even plateaued. I think he's on the way down. He, a lot of people say heart and soul, the team that's great. Defensive specialist. That's great. But GMs should not pay for past performance, regardless of how much Draymond Green meant to the team and helped them win, what was it, four championships? You have to sign him for what he's going to give you, not what he gave you. So it'll be interesting to see what that contract looks like when free agency kicks off in a few weeks. Now, another, uh, I don't say important trade, but notable trade, Kristaps Porzingis was essentially traded to Boston 
in a three-team trade from Washington, and Marcus Smart was sent to Memphis. There was draft picks, other players that were involved. But essentially, Porzingis to Boston, Marcus Smart to Memphis. Kristaps Porzingis was Victor Wembayama before Victor Wembayama was drafted. Porzingis, seven foot three, unicorn, could handle, shoot, blew out his ACL in his time with New York, traded to Dallas, then to Washington, now to Boston, so well-traveled. Last year, played in 65 games. Listen to the stat line, 23.2 points, 8.4 rebounds, 2.7 assists, and he's only 27, going to be 28. Young. Marcus Smart last year, 61 games, 11.5 points, 3.1 rebounds, and 6.3 assists. He's 29, defensive specialists, so you're, you're taking that away, but you're getting bigger down low, you're getting more scoring and certainly more rebounding. And GM Brad Stevens said this was about balancing the roster. And I'm so glad he said that because I've been pounding, it's not a table, pounding the desk on previous podcasts about, and, and it's not that they're not a big three now. I don't think Porzingis is at the level right now that he's a big three with Jason Tatum and um, Jalen Brown if he signs or he's he's eligible for it to sign, you know, a max extension. You know, it's a big two plus Porzingis who, you know, if he plays well enough, could maybe be, you know, round out a big three, but it gives you one at every level. You have a guard in Jalen Brown. You have a forward in Jason Tatum, and you have a center who could also is a stretch five or a stretch four in Chris Sepp's Porzingis. Again, it's not the two guard. This is not, Kyrie and James Harden trying to figure out how do you play together if you're both ball-dominant players. Tatum, Brown, Porzingis, they can all put it in the basket. They're all going to be, they're all averaging over 23, 22 points a game this past season. Too many mouths to feed isn't an issue or shouldn't be an issue in the NBA when you're spreading out where these players are located on the court or what their offensive and defensive responsibilities are are Porzingis down at the basket rebounding cheap putbacks not he's not a tremendous rim protector but he's got the height and length to be that that was not Marcus Smart so now they have to figure out at point guard shooting guard who's going to step into that role is it going to be Jalen Brown is he going to handle the ball is he going to facilitate in addition to scoring assuming he's there which I think he's going to be there next year I think he's under contract for one more year right but he's eligible for an extension now Boston got better Boston got better. If everybody's healthy, Boston did get better. Good trade for the Celtics. And Marcus Smart in Memphis, they do need another guard, even though he's not as explosive as John Morant, but it'll take a little bit of the sting out of the John Morant suspended for the first 25 games, bringing in someone like a Marcus Smart. So moving from the NBA to entertainment, Netflix, I just saw a couple days ago, released the trailer to their upcoming sci-fi series called The Three-Body Problem, which will be releasing January of 2024. I've heard about this uh, several months ago. These are science fiction novels by China's preeminent sci-fi author, Liu uh, Sixin. I hope I pronounced that correct. It's part of a trilogy, so The Three-Body Problem, book one, The Dark Forest, book two, and Death's End, book three. Adapted by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss of Game of Thrones fame and infamy all at the same time. And we'll get back to them momentarily. But the plot of the show deals with humanity's first encounter with an alien civilization. Through depictions of the past, present, and future, viewers learn not only about this new race and its advancements, but how do humans deal with the fallout of discovering life beyond Earth and this is something that takes place over hundreds of years, so it's weighing over humanity's head for generations. And this new life form isn't expected to reach Earth for 450 years. The reason why this life, these aliens are coming to Earth is because their planet has three suns, and it's causing the aliens to not be able to live there anymore, and the three suns is essentially the three-body problem. I guess, you know, the three celestial bodies, three suns, three-body problem. So what happens on Earth during this time? The questions they're going to ask, what preparations are given the most attention? How is the political landscape divided? 
with the confirmation of life beyond our atmosphere. You know, I've read that there's going to be groups of people that are going to think that these aliens are gods, that they're they're going to automatically assume that these aliens are hostile. And then groups of people that think, well, humanity, you've had your chance on Earth. Let's obliterate ourselves so these aliens have a crack at treating our planet better than we do. So I mentioned the the showrunners or the adapted by Benoff and Weiss from Game of Thrones. So started out strong when they had George R. R. Martin's source material, finished poorly. I, I didn't read the book, so I can't compare. I was entertained. But based on Game of Thrones fans, finished poorly since George R. R. Martin has not <laughs> finished the books and, and did not have the source material for Benoff and Weiss to work from. Now, coming off of Game of Thrones, they were offered a Star Wars trilogy, which was announced and dissipated, doesn't exist anymore, which, you know, why any of these new movies, the Ray movie, the Dawn of the Jedi movie, um, the uh, Dave Filoni movie, I think, I think the Dave Filoni movie is going to happen with um, the Mandalorian and Ahsoka and Thrawn, et cetera. But the other ones, got to wait and see. Gotta wait and see because Star Wars stuff has been canceled before. But after being booted from Star Wars, then they were in talks with HBO and started working on an alternate American history show called Confederate about what if the South won the Civil War. Now, this was like, at this point, four years ago. I remember this. When I saw the trailer for Three Body Problem and read the article, the Confederate show kind of clicked back in my memory. And reading about why it didn't happen, there was a there were a lot of people out there that had issues with this alternate American history about the South winning the Civil War. People were calling it slavery fan fiction. And here's an interesting quote that I had, you know, if it's not being made for people of color, then that means this is made for white folks. Why, as a white person, would you want to see that unless it appeals to your base desire to see people enslaved and in pain? Ridiculously over-the-top take. Because it might be an interesting story to tell. It might be... I'll use the word entertaining, although people may jump down your throats. How could you say slavery and beatings and this, that is entertaining? One, we don't know what this show is going to be about. There probably would have been limitations on things that would have maybe made people of color feel awkward. And I understand the pushback because this country has too many racists, too many bigots, too many rednecks, too many people that reenact the civil war down South. Think about this. They are reenacting wars, smaller skirmishes from a war they lost. Confederate flags are still up. I know there was a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion over the years about taking down Confederate monuments. It's like, and I see both sides of the fence there, how it means something to people down South, assuming it's not meaning they are still pro-slavery and anti-people of color and all, all that stuff. You can't really erase history, right? And this is like the big... You can't erase history. You should learn from it. And I guess that's people's point of view here with canceling the show Confederate. They don't want to either relive or live through an alternate version of what would have happened worst case scenario should the South have won. But let's be careful about censorship, folks. I know that there was, in reading articles, that there was fear that this would inflame, this show would inflame hate groups across the country, especially down south. I think you're giving a little bit too much credit to a TV show. I think you're giving, a, now people are idiots. I don't think people are going to, one, we don't know what time period this would be in. It could be the late 1800s, early 1900s. I don't know if it was going to be the 2020s of what this country would look like if the South had won, maybe it would. But I, I am uncomfortable with censoring, and, and I'll use the, the bougie term for this, censoring people's artistic visions based on, a, I don't want to say a small subset, but a group of people who don't want this to happen. It's a story, folks. 
It's a book, folks. There's actually, not that there's a book, there's books that are banned. When, did, when was book banning cool? That, that, guys, that was Nazi Germany. Book banning, book burning. Is, is, that, is that what we're, what we're gearing towards? And if it can't be for everybody, it's wrong and should be eliminated? There's a book, and I have it, and I haven't read it yet, and that's my own fault, that won, I think it was the Pulitzer Prize. It's a comic book graphic novel called Mouse, M-A-U-S, that follows mice, M-I-C-E, during the Nazis, you know, occupation of Poland and World War II, etc. Won the Pulitzer Prize. It's considered a banned book. How, how pathetic is that, guys? We're banning stuff. Instead of people just not watching or reading things that don't appeal to them or things that they don't like, we get things canceled. And I guess that was really the dawn of cancel culture. I think this was started or canceled officially in beginning of 2020. So right around when the pandemic hit, but it's a shame. I mean, I'm not losing sleep and crying every night that I didn't get to see this Confederate show. I think the reason why it was canceled, we just need to tread cautiously. I don't think an HBO show is <laughs> that got how many people have HBO anymore because everyone's doing streaming and other services is going to cause any sort of revolution or inflame things where that, that's going to start a race war. I, 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 I just, I just don't believe it, but you know, the vocal minority of groups, I don't mean minority people of color, the loudest group is going to be the ones that are going to push through or kill stuff. And this was just an example of something being killed. All that being said, the three body problem, if you haven't checked out the trailer, check it out. It's a really out there type of sci-fi show. Um, but something that might be worth watching because David Bainoff and DB Weiss have the trilogies to work from the books are done. It's going to be apparently a 24 episode adaption eight episodes per season. I'm, and I'm assuming each season is a book. I think it's going to be pretty interesting. Um, you know, six months, five to six months to check it out, but something you might want to put on your streaming radar. And last, but lot, not least a show that was released and canceled pretty quickly. Paper girls on prime video. My wife and I just finished this a couple days ago, entertaining only eight episodes, only one season. Rotten Tomatoes, 91% critic score and a 90% audience score based on the comic book series of the same name from 2015 to 2019 by writer uh, Brian K. Vaughan and, and artist Cliff Chang. It was 30, 30, 31 issues, and it has a Stranger Things feel or vibe to it. It's not biting off Stranger Things, guys, because the comic book came out in 2015 and the first season of Stranger Things came out, I guess, mid-2016. Nor do I think Stranger Things bit off of Paper Girls. Different stories, but it follows four Paper Girls, girls that deliver papers in the morning on their bicycles on Hell Day 1988. And Hell Day is considered in Ohio where they live the day after Thanksgiving. They time travel a few times to different points in the future where some of their characters meet their older older selves. They are obviously trying to get home back to 1988, and there are warring factions, one called the Old Watch, and one are a bunch of young rebels who are fighting. The Old Watch is fighting to keep the timeline as is. The young rebels are fighting to go back in time and change things that have gone wrong. And it really is, in a lot of ways, an allegory. The Old Watch being people that have that have grown up into their 30s and 40s and older that want to keep things the way they they've been aren't really looking for change telling the newer generation what they should do telling the newer generation that we were right our older generation is is smarter or better than yours and and that's a pretty i think obvious theme throughout now this Paper Girls debuted on Amazon Prime in July of 2022, and it was canceled in September. It, it would never made, I don't think, um, or wasn't in their top 10 for very long. And it's un it's unfortunate. Um, Brian K. Vaughan, this is his third adaption 
that he's had canceled after a season. He had the Marvel comic series Runaways adapted for a few, I think a season or two and was canceled. And Why the Last Man was with DC Vertigo one season on Hulu canceled. I think Runaways was on on Hulu as well. It might be on Disney Plus. I'll have to check that out. Brian K. Vaughan, one of my favorite comic book writers, had a great run starting out in his career on uh, Mystique for Marvel. Um, you know, the blue female morphing character from X-Men uh, worked on Run Runaways, Why the Last Man, which is essentially, you know, one male human survives a plague on the planet. He and his male uh, monkey. And kind of he's on a just on a quest to to survive. Um, like I think it was a little close to 90 issues or 70 issues. Really well done, um, but did not translate well to the screen or at least was canceled. And the same with Paper Girls, except that was owned. That was an image book comic image comic book. That's the company Marvel Comics, DC Comics, Image Comics. That's creator owned. So he owns the rights to that, and I'm sure he made more off of Paper Girls even writing it than he did Runaways or Why the Last Man, and certainly off of optioning it. He and, and Cliff Chang, I'm hoping, made some good bank on that. And another image series that Brian K. Vaughan is writing, um, Saga, and the artist is Fiona Staples, fantastic image series as well. I don't think that would transfer well to TV series or movies, but a very good writer that if anybody's checking out or wants to check out some compiled graphic novels, I would say Why the Last Man Worth It, um, Paper Girls certainly, and Saga is ongoing as well. So I actually, once I remembered that the first season was canceled, I wound up buying the compiled comic book run on eBay. I think it was like a $50 book that I wound up getting for 25 bucks with shipping. So I enjoyed the deal there and there are significant changes from the comic book, but this is a situation where I understand why the changes were being made. The comic book had more creatures and special effects, big robots like transformers appearing quite a bit in the comic books. These creatures appear much, much, much less frequent. And I know that was, I'm sure, a budgetary issue for Amazon. So the changes made Sensor TV beyond the special effects changes. There were no real changes to the characters, but situations some of the characters were put in, who they met in terms of either their descendants or who they become as people 10, 20 years into the future. I think the saddest part about this, I, I think it's two things. One, I think the it wasn't promoted. I don't remember it being promoted all that well on Amazon last year. Again, it came out a year ago, but I remember, I remember it kind of being out there, but not a huge, certainly not the promotional push that Wheel of Time got. And of course, Lord of the Rings. This is a more highly rated series than either one of those shows by far. And it's not going to get picked up. It was being shopped last year for another streaming service to pick it up. I don't think that was the case because it's been a year later and I haven't heard anything. So I think promotionally Amazon did it wrong. I think the name, even if they changed the name from Paper Girls to something a little bit more alluring, it would have given people maybe a hint or a prompt about what the story is about. You know, not that we wouldn't change like time travel girls, like I, quantum girls, like I don't know, but paper girls, I doesn't sound all that sexy when you just kind of see the the image of it flash up on you know your prime menu, your prime video menu, especially if you're flipping quick through stuff. And I think sadly too, if this was paper boys, or the four main characters were boys this would have done better. And it might have been picked up for a second season. I hate to say that. And God, I hope that I'm wrong because then again, it just shows how backwards we are in 2023. Cause a good and entertaining story is a good and entertaining story. Regardless the genders, ethnicities, religions, creeds, sexual orientations, whatever of the characters. And these are all 12-year-old girls, so middle school, that have paper routes that are kind of thrust into the future. 
uh, R-rated. There is vulgarity throughout, but it was a fun, entertaining, well-done show. If anybody is out there looking for something that isn't a long-time commitment, like, for instance, there's some shows, and I hate to say Breaking Bad is one of them, that I, I've never watched, and I know it's fantastic. I know it has a... I know from what I've heard, a great series finale that ties everything up nicely. I am, it's on the list to watch, but I know it's what, like four or five seasons that it's going to take me a while to get through versus something like A Sweet Tooth is only two seasons or Foundation is only, you know, it's the second season is coming out in August on Apple+. Plus. Uh, other show, Picard's only two more seasons, Strange New Worlds only two seasons. So it's a shorter time commitment to get through the, um, the amount of episodes that are currently available. So if anybody out there has that mentality, like, hey, I want to be able to binge something in a weekend or a couple days or a week. I mean, I, my wife and I still watch just one episode every night. And these episodes are shorter. These aren't 55 minute episodes, 40 to 47, 48 minutes tops. It's going to go quick. But it is a fun show, eight episodes, that if you're looking for something, one season and done, and you're okay with the cliffhanger, cool. If you watch it, and you want more, and you want to see how it ends, Amazon or eBay, uh, Paper Girls, The Complete Story, it's 30 issues all together, like a big Bible book, and you, you'll get it for well, on, you'll get it for probably, you can get it for maybe between $25 and $35 worth reading. So that concludes our podcast for today and for this week. I want to thank everybody who listened today, anybody who listened earlier in the week as well. As always, thank you for the double dip. Next week, the plan is to have two podcasts, either Monday or Tuesday and Thursday or Friday. It could very well be one just based on my availability. But I think once we get into July, that first week of July, for sure, it's going to be one a week until the football and school season starts. But beyond that, I hope everyone has a great weekend. Stay happy, healthy, and safe, and we will talk soon. Take care.